Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Hi, everybody. It is such a special privilege and just joy today to bring this guest to you. Dr. Frank Lippman is a friend, a colleague, and someone with whom I share the uncanny feeling that we are of one mind and doing our own work in two separate bodies. And so it's a real special pleasure to bring this book to you that he is bringing to the market, which is called How to Be Well. When I read this book, I thought, man, I wish I wrote that. Frank Lippman is an incredible physician who, for him, health is more than just the absence of disease. It's a total state of physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and social well-being. Frank is a widely recognized trailblazer and leader in functional and integrative medicine, and he's a New York Times bestselling author of five books, How to Be Well, The New Health Rules, 10 Reasons You Feel Old and Get Fat, Revive, and Total Renewal. After his initial medical training in his native country of South Africa, Dr. Lippmann spent 18 months working at clinics in the bush, where he became familiar with the local traditional healers called Sangomas, which kindled his interest in non-Western healing modalities. In 1984, Dr. Lippmann immigrated to the U.S., where he became the chief medical resident at Lincoln Hospital in Bronx, New York, and while there, became fascinated by the hospital's well-known addiction clinic, which used acupuncture and Chinese medicine to treat people suffering from heroin and crack addiction. Seeing the way these patients responded so positively to acupuncture made him even more aware of the potential of implementing non-Western medicine to promote holistic well-being. As a medical student, he was taught to focus on the disease rather than the patient. And now as a doctor, he found himself treating symptoms rather than the root causes of illness. Frustrated by the constraints of his training and the limitations in helping his patients regain true health, he began a journey of discovery to search for the path to meaningful, long-term health and wellness. He began studying nutrition, acupuncture, Chinese medicine, herbal medicine, functional medicine, biofeedback, meditation, and yoga. Dr. Lippmann founded the 1111 Wellness Center in 1992, where he combines the best of Western medicine and cutting-edge nutritional science with age-old healing techniques from the East. As his patient chef Seamus Mullen told the New York Times, if antibiotics are right, he'll try it. If it's an anti-inflammatory diet, he'll do that too. He's looking at the body as a system rather than looking at isolated things. In addition to his practice, Dr. Lippmann is the founder of Be Well, an expanding lifestyle wellness brand he founded in 2010 to help people create, sustain, and lead healthier lives. Frank, thank you so much for joining me today. I am incredibly excited about your book. I adore you, and I'm excited to bring this conversation to my tribe. And thanks, Aviva. The feelings are mutual. So when I got your book, The Galley, which we in the in the family get to see earlier than the general public, I really was so incredibly excited. You and I had a conversation about this book really from the beginning of when you were exploring who to work with and where to publish it. And, you know, on the one hand, I want to say it's a throwback. And I mean that in the most positive sense of, of the word, it's back to basics. And it also reminds me of the kind of books that I first got my hands on in the early 1980s when I was first 
studying what wasn't even called integrative medicine then, but the cool stuff that we do that really does help people get better. And at the same time, it is, in my opinion, the most important health book that folks can get their hands on today. Tell me what inspired you to write this beautiful new book, which is colorful and fun and exciting and and has everything we need to get well in it. Well, that was quite an introduction. Thank you. I love it. <laughs> you know, I think what inspired me was this millennial generation, you know, because we're seeing so many wellness seekers today, and they don't think like our generation thought. Um, they question the system. They want to be independent. Um, they're not listening to the authority. And the the system is, is, is not... Um, in sync with with their needs, um, they're looking for fresh approaches. And and you know, as I've, I've been practicing a long time, like you, and more and more of these young patients were coming in, and they totally got it. But at the same time, the the wellness world is like the wild west. There's so much information out there. Um, some of it good, some of it not good. So I thought, with this new way of thinking, and from you know what I always say from from being a quack to becoming a guru, you know, we've been saying the same things for 30 years and now people are catching on. I thought put, putting it all out there, everything I've learned over the last 30 or 40 years, um, putting it into an accessible book where especially the young generation can can latch onto and get. And I think that's sort of what inspired me. But um, yeah, I, I just think that's a, it's, a, it's the right book for the for the time now. And I think it's relevant to anyone at any age. I mean, I can honestly see sort of the middle America uh, QVC watching public gobbling it up just as well because you've taken concepts of basic wellness and made them on the one hand high level and on the other hand absolutely accessible. You have unpacked it so cleverly. And it's fun. It's a really fun book. It's like, I have to tell you guys, there is nothing else on the market like this. It's colorful. It's beautiful. It's just bright. And it's just uplifting to actually look at the pages. Yeah. And I, I, I really have to thank my writer, Emily Grieven, who you, I know, is, you've been talking to her too. I mean, she was fantastic. I mean, she she made me look hip and cool. You know, she took the information and had a wonderful way of presenting it. So, you know, but it just wasn't me. It was working. You know, I have these wonderful health coaches that I work with that tend to be in their, you know, 30s and they're much younger and Amelie is a bit younger. And they were able to to make it much cooler than I really am. I think you're pretty cool, actually. So there's something in the book that when I read it, you know, you meet these colleagues and every now and then you're just like, this sort of misplaced zygote theory that somehow we're actually all related and we're finding each other now, even though we're not from the same birth family, we're definitely from the same tribe. And um, in my practice, I have come to describe what I do. You know, for the for the public, in a sense, I use the terms integrative and functional medicine because they're, it's what people understand or they're looking for, so that's how they find me. But in my own mentations, when I'm teaching my students... I talk about something that I call good medicine. And yep. when I got your manuscript, I thought, wow, we're totally related. This is incredible because you have a whole chapter 
in the in, in the introduction where you talk about this term good medicine, you really help dial in what that means, and you and I mean exactly the same thing. So, Brent, can you talk about why you you don't just necessarily pigeonhole yourself into integrative or functional or holistic or this, that, or the other, but you call it good medicine? It's so important. Yeah, I mean, I look, I've been very influenced by Chinese medicine, by functional medicine, by Western medicine, by all these medicines, and over the years, you just take you know, different parts of different systems and, and you see what works. You know, for instance, Western medicine is wonderful at crisis care. And, you know, if you're having a heart attack or you break a bone or you you um, need an antibiotic, you know, emergency medicine, Western medicine is wonderful. Chinese medicine is good at other things. Functional medicine is pretty good at a lot of chronic disease, but very weak at um, musculoskeletal problems, for instance, or emotional or psycho-spiritual problems. So each of these systems have their strengths and their weaknesses. And um, I, I just think, you know, tapping into to anything that works. And, you know, I think all of us have been influenced by various teachers. My biggest influences actually were my Chinese medicine teachers and my yoga teacher who weren't coming from a functional medicine perspective. So to me, this is more than functional medicine. It's really trying to bring all these traditions and, even trying to bring some of these old traditions that I've been interested in, not really studied, and, and, and just seeing how all these various systems work with the body. And, and it's, to me, that's just good medicine. It's just, and different people connect with different systems. Um, for some people, Chinese medicine works. Other people, functional medicine works. Other people, you know, let's call it therapy. So, to me, good medicine is trying to apply whatever works to that particular person sitting in front of you. One of the things that you and I have talked about in our own private conversations, personal conversations, is how complicated it's getting to sort through this plethora of options there. And also how even with functional medicine, for example, it can make getting well or being well extremely complicated. We start to think that we need a lot of supplements and a lot of tests and super detailed diet plans. And you and I both know from our own personal and clinical experience that yes, there are many people who have very complicated health situations and do need some more deep dive into testing or some more specific dietary or supplement plans. But you and I have talked about how a lot of what is out there is not validated and sometimes maybe causing more psychological stress and even more cost and burden to people seeking health than is necessary. And you've kind of stepped away from that really beautifully with this book in sort of saying these are the things that we all sort of agree on and know can get most people well without all of that entrapment. Can you talk about some of that yeah. for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in the, the extraordinary um, power of ordinary things. So the, the daily things, you know, the things we do on a daily basis, I believe have extraordinary healing powers and we take them for granted from being grateful or being kind to people or taking a walk in the forest or on the beach or 
trying to get in sync with the seasons or with night and day. I mean, so many things that we don't take for, or we take for granted, we don't realize how important they are in, in the way we live today, I think we're missing out on. And to me, those are the, those little things, if you make those little changes, and they're actually quite easy to make, you realize how much better you can feel. And you make one change, and it leads to another change, and leads to another change. So the, the book is really trying to tap into your own healing power. You know, I have this mandala we can talk about. And in the middle of the mandala is you, because you know your body better than anyone else. You know, for some people doing a two-week detox and getting rid of sugar and grains and whatever is great. But for other people, they need slow and steady. And different times of our lives, we need different things. So I wanted to, to, to show people that these small little things that we take for granted can have huge benefits on our health. And that, that's what I try to show in the book, that um, don't take them for, for granted. It's not as hard as you think. It's not as complicated. You know, we as doctors tend to complicate things, um, but don't get lost in the doctor's stuff. Just, you know, believe in yourself. And, and start making these small little changes. Something small like waking up in the morning and doing 10 or 15 minutes of meditation, you know, having rituals, spending time with your family. There's so many little things that one can do that are extremely beneficial to our health. One of the things that I discovered as a midwife, as an herbalist, and then going through my medical training at Yale was that you could really differentiate the people who were very experienced from the people who were very new by how, yeah. many, how many things they did to or for a patient. In fact, um, there's a very famous social medicine doctor who says doctors should spend time, more time thinking about what they can do for a patient than what they can do to a patient. And one of the beauties of your book, to me, demonstrates your your long experience as a physician is that you do recognize the incredible innate healing power of the body. And by saying you can make these changes on your own, you're doing exactly what I think the best of us as doctors should be doing, which is kind of working our way out of a job by returning the important skills that people can know right back into their hands. So you've done a beautiful job with that. And at the same time, you haven't uh, it's not a throwback in the sense that it's old-fashioned. You really take on some big contemporary topics like intermittent fasting and ketogenic diet, which I want to get to in a few minutes. But before we do that, can you explain for listeners, you and I are very familiar with what a mandala is. Can you explain for our listeners what a mandala is and why you chose that model to represent the sort of concentric healing circles of, of interventions that they can do on their own. Right. So a, a mandala is a symbol used in many wisdom traditions around the world. And it's almost always a circle and it represents wholeness and, and potential and the infinite. And for many, many years, when I started studying Chinese medicine, I was trying to understand Chinese medicine from a Western perspective. So I was trying to understand what does qi mean what is from a western perspective what is you know 
too much yang. And I was uh, for years and years, I was trying to understand my Chinese teachings from a Western perspective. And in this book and with this mandala, you know, the, the older you get and the more you think about things and the wiser you get, I thought, well, why don't I put what I understand from a Western perspective back into a sort of Chinese, into an Eastern model? And uh, why don't I create some type of mandala, some type of, of a symbol which where people can meditate on and think about because... In Eastern traditions, a mandala is used as a tool for establishing a sacred uh, practice. In practices of meditation, um, it's often used as a focal point of contemplation. So the idea was for people to meditate and to contemplate about where they are in the cosmos because a mandala is this cosmos in a way. And in my good medicine mandala, I have you, the patient, you at the center and then the surrounding six rings. So I took what, what's important from a Western perspective, so how to eat, how to move, how to sleep, how to protect oneself from all the chemicals out there, how to unwind and relax, and how to connect to yourself, to your community, and to the earth at large. Those were my six rings. So I created this sacred symbol of this good medicine mandala of you in the middle surrounded by these six circles. So it was really my own craziness of trying to bring my Western understanding of the body back into an Eastern concept. That's sort of how it came about. I love it. Whenever I'm writing a new book, I actually draw a mandala of, of concentric circles and then I do spokes. And that's how I actually create my book chapters. And when I saw it, I just thought... This is just such a, a natural way of thinking. And I think the difference between Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy is very much one can imagine a circle versus a linear trajectory, yep. right? And yep. so it's beautiful. So you mentioned the six rings of the um, mandala. And one thing that I also really love about your book is that it's not some, uh, it's not like a 30-day prescription. First of all, it's a lifestyle. But also, the way you've set it up, it really allows the reader to drop in, in any circle that they feel is going to be the most effective for them. So you say somewhere in early in the book, if making dietary changes is easier for you than reaching out and making new friendships, that's fine. But if reaching out and starting a meditation practice is easier for you than start there. Explain how these little changes in one part of the body or in one change in our life can affect the whole. Right. Well, I'm just going to answer something you talked about in, in that question first, that the idea that we all are really individuals and different to each other. And, and although we get taught that in, Chinese medicine and functional medicine, we often make a diagnosis and treat people the same way, even though we have much more awareness of unique biochemistry or everyone being a little bit different. But I think, you know, everyone's personality is different. So, you know, what their passions are, how they will choose to do things. So the, the mandala is, is, and the information is universal but the way you use them is personalized because you can navigate these rings whichever way you want, depending on your personality, depending on your individual preferences. 
Um, it can be gradual and de gentle. It can be deep and focused. So you can pop into any ring, whatever. The idea was look at the book, see what grabs you, and just start doing that and do that for a day or two or three and see how you feel. And then you feel good about it. You move on. I've noticed over the years when if I can inspire and motivate people to make one or two changes, they feel good about it and they start that's the motivation to start making more changes. So diet is often the first place because you get it's more material, you get a tangible result quicker often. But you know, people can start anywhere. Now if if someone's really busy, they don't have the time, just why don't you start eating with your family? Why don't you, you know, put your phone down for a couple of hours a day, something like that. So the idea was that start where you want and then, you know, it works like a, you'll have a ripple effect. Um, just go to what draws you in, do that a couple of days, maybe move on, do it at your own pace. And it was a real way of, as you said, it's not linear, it's circular, of really individualizing it for people or really making, this is a no program program. So people can enter wherever they want and go at their own pace. And, you know, because I've noticed over the years that when people start to sleep better, then maybe they start exercising. When they start exercising, they'll take more care of um, other parts of their life. Um, so, you know, as a doctor, you're sitting there for the first hour trying to enter that person's psyche in a way, trying to work out how are we going to get this person to make the changes? How are we going to make them? Do we need to motivate them, inspire them? Do we need to instill a little bit of fear? So the idea was, I don't know anyone, everyone who's going to read this book, but if you learn to know yourself, and the idea of the mandala is sort of a learning tool to learn to know yourself, to become more aware, you start tuning into what's going to work for you, where to start, and how to continue. So a, a big influence here has been my Chinese medicine teachers, uh, Harriet Beinfeld and Ephraim Korngold. So oh, a lot yes, of I love them. They're wonderful. Uh, so Ephraim and, and Harriet and my good friend Steve Cowan, who you know yes. well, who we're all very close and just spending hours and hours and hours, you know, we've gone away together. Just they've sort of instilled that way of thinking into me, which is a real Eastern way. It's a very non-Western way, even non-functional medicine in a way. I mean, functional medicine is wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But it's sort of a Westernized version of, true sort of circular, non-linear thinking, which really got instilled in me by Harriet and Ephraim, and Steve has been helpful too. So I think the book was, in a way, an articulation of all the years of brainwashing that I've had by these beautiful friends of mine. I had that early introduction into Chinese medicine as well through a another close friend of Harriet and Ephraim, Michael Tierra, who actually lived with them back when they were all on that bear black bear commune and um, I find that it's a very different way of connecting our health to the cosmos also it's impossible yep. to sort of separate ourselves from not just the world we live in in terms of what's going on in the news but the actual environment that we're in the yeah. the temperatures the climates the seasonal changes and i feel like you do a really beautiful job of bringing that sensibility into the book as well so that really makes sense one of the other 
pieces that I find both about you, but also that comes through in the book is, I guess there's two ways of thinking about this. One is that, um, as you said, there is no one way for everybody, but also it's incredibly non-judgmental and you're not trying to sell anybody on anything. And I really appreciate it. For example, the literature that I have read on dairy shows that about 50% of people who eat dairy have an inflammatory reaction to it. You know, when we look at things like highly sensitive uh, CRP or SED rates, when we look at the actual biochemical markers, but about 50% of people who eat dairy actually do really fine on it. And for some people, healthy, full fat, organic, good quality dairy is is fine. And similarly for gluten, you're not on this bandwagon to get everybody eating this sort of stripped down, restricted, minimalist diet. Can you talk more about that and um, some of your philosophies around food that you bring into the book? Yeah, I, I think food is tricky because it's determined by so many things, in, in particular our microbiome and how we digest the food. But I agree with you. I'd say 50% of people have a problem with dairy, and many people don't. It's like there was a meditation teacher, I can't remember his name, who said what works for one person is great, what doesn't work for the next person, and the third person it does violence to. You said that in the book. I love how you said that about the dairy. And, yep. and it's true. You know, For some people, dairy is terrible, but for some people, they thrive on it. So there is no one way. Gluten, I think, is trickier. I mean, I, I, I do find people, you know, now with sourdough and, and fermented grains, people are tolerating them better. But gluten is one of those foods that I'd say most people don't do well with, although some people do just fine with it. My wife does just fine with it. Mm -hmm. Not that she eats a lot of it, but, you know, I have many patients who can have a bit of gluten and they're fine. They go over a certain amount and then they start maybe feeling it. So diet is so tricky. It is always good to give people parameters. I hate getting people to count things or to be that strict. I just want them to enjoy their food. So I, what I would say is, and it happened to me as I got older, I became pre-diabetic on a sort of pescatarian type of diet, eating lots of fruit and lots of whole grains and fish and avoiding meat for many years. And then suddenly I, I went, oops, I'm pre-diabetic. I did my bloods. And I see that more and more with people. As we get older, we tend to not metabolize carbs as well as we do when we're younger. So I think, for instance, the amount of carbs, I tend to put most people on a lower carb diet, especially as they get older and especially if they're more sedentary. Younger people and especially active people tend to tolerate, you know, have no problem with carbs. There's definitely a genetic component too. But I would say as a general rule, I tend to stick to recommending um, whole foods and basically protein. You know, if you want to eat animal protein, that's fine as long as it's a good source. So protein, vegetables, and some fruits. I'm finding more and more people do better without grains, but some people do just fine with grains. So if I had to choose one diet that works best for most people, it would be a paleo-ish type of diet with lots of vegetables. But, you know, for instance, my wife does perfectly fine. On, you know, I do well on lots of fat and, and fewer carbs. She does she doesn't do well on lots of fat and, and fewer carbs. She does much better on more carbs and less fat, and I see that all the time. So 
It, it really is individualized, and you've got to learn about yourself and see how you feel and see how you do on a different diet. But, you know, obviously, take out the sugar, take out the junk food, take out the processed foods, and, you know, I would cut back on the grains um, for most people. Well, what what you do in the book is a beautiful job of laying out the possibilities. I feel like you have laid out the possibilities and you've said, here are the things that I know based on my 30 some odd years of experience uh, or 35 or more years of experience now as a doctor. These are the things that I have found the majority of people heal on and thrive on. And now you can use this to then use yourself, not so much as a living experiment, but try this, try this, and here's how to adjust it if you're experiencing X, Y, or Z. And you've also made it very simple. You have, and when I say simple, you've given a lot of different tools for preparing your food ahead of time, how to make it, you know, food ordering from online food companies if you need to do that. You've made it very accessible so that nothing is so overwhelming and you really can find, no pun intended to the Eastern medicine, but the elements that work for you. As long as you pick one or two elements from each of the important circles in the mandala. And that's, that's really, I think, such a beautiful gift that you've given to all of us. Now, yeah, I think you brought up a good point. I think too many of us overwhelm our patients. I'm definitely guilty of that too. And uh, when someone feels overwhelmed, it's going to be much harder for them to make changes. So the, the simpler one can make it, the better. And we definitely try to do that in the book. Yeah. So there was one area of the book, it was the only area that I thought, okay, well, this is the one area I don't necessarily do as much with my patients because I think maybe also I have mostly women patients of a certain age with a lot of adrenal and thyroid challenges and hormone challenges, which is a ketogenic diet. So you don't, like I said, this book does not, as much as it's sort of back to basics, it's back to basics in a very contemporary an important way. And so you do touch on really all of the big health topics that we're all talking about and our patients are asking about. And that includes ketogenic and intermittent fasting. Now, I have really gotten very um, excited about the impact of se- I'm seeing on intermittent fasting for my patients who, for example, have weight loss resistance, a lot of brain fog, inflammation, autoimmune disease. Not so much for pregnant and breastfeeding women and not yeah. for those who are who have trouble where they get overly restrictive with food, but especially for women in their uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, really fabulous. Let's talk about intermittent fasting. Let's talk about ketogenic diet because those are really so front and center for so many people right now. Yeah, I mean, I was always taught, you know, Ephraim and Harriet used to teach Years and years ago, interestingly enough, and they never called it intermittent fasting. They always used to suggest taking as much time from dinner to breakfast. And, you know, Ephraim always used to say, you know, it's called break fast. That's what it is. Whether you break your fast at 8 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock or 12 o'clock doesn't make any difference. The longer you can not eat and break your fast later. So he's always should try and recommend at least 12 hours. 
you're resting your digestive system. The idea was the digestive system is such a key aspect of our health. It's a center. It's an earth element. The longer you can rest it and let it recover because it's dealing with so much crap that we're putting into it, the better it's going to be for, for you. So there was always that aspect of trying to break your fast later in the morning. And I, I mean, I'd been doing this on and off for years, just skipping breakfast and having, you know, lunch as my breakfast or having breakfast at 12. And I always noticed how good I felt. But I never thought of it more than just resting my digestive system because that's sort of how I was taught it. And then the, the whole intermittent fasting craze came around and I uh, started using it more and more with patients. And, and, and as you said, some patients you, uh, it's fine for. And finding it really good for people who, who had lost some weight and then got to a point who are struggling with their diet or struggling with their cravings. and I just noticed, you know, just telling people to do it two or three times a week, people were actually thriving on it. So that's why I thought it was important to put in there. And you know, now there's more and more research about it, you know, showing how good it is for, for your metabolism and for your blood sugar control, et cetera, and for anti-aging. There's actually a wonderful guy, Jason Fung. I don't know if you've ever had him on your... Yeah, I haven't. I met Jason, though, when we were revitalized together. Yeah, you should. He's a brilliant guy. He's in Canada. He's a nephrologist or endocrinologist. But he's, you know, it's, he he was actually... He did my section on fasting. Um, and you should have him on your podcast. But I just started noticing people doing well on it. So that was interesting for me because, once again, it was you know, being taught something from a Chinese medicine perspective and then we sort of overlay this Western understanding, sort of articulating how helpful it is, maybe a different understanding, but it's the same thing. It's almost like the research starts to validate what the traditional uses are. I mean, even a lot of our pharmaceuticals, right? A lot of our things like tamoxifen or other pharmaceuticals we use even for cancer are based on traditional uses that then yep. led to the research because somebody said, well, I mean, people have been doing this for, you know, Islam, Islamic culture is to have a month of, of yep. basically fasting. Jews fast. My best friend's husband is Ethiopian, born and raised in Ethiopia, and he has very specific days of the year where he fasts, and then three days a week, every single week, he eats no meat, no dairy. This is something that Yep. You know, we put a name on it in our modern culture, and it's a way that people can sort of sell it, but actually it is quite traditional. Exactly. No, and that's a lot of what we talk exactly, and that's a lot of what we're talking about. So that's intermittent fasting, which I'm quite intrigued. It's not right for everyone, but it's actually once you start sort of bringing it into your life and doing it once a week, twice a week, you actually – I feel pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I do it too. You know what I've also found too is I'm so I'm 51 while at the time that we're recording this and um when my kids were little and I was breastfeeding, I mean I really needed a lot more carbs. I would yeah. never I would never have been able to intermittent fast. And when I was in my medical training, I needed so much brain food that if I was on call, I mean, I, I could have eaten a steak for breakfast. I needed so much protein and fat. But now, you know, I'm at that perimenopausal age. I'm not childbearing. And I find myself naturally 
uh, just eating fewer meals. So, and my husband's 61. So we'll wake up in the morning. I jokingly call it brunch fast instead of breakfast because we'll, uh, we'll eat breakfast on days that I'm going out. If I'm going to be teaching or seeing patients and I'm starting early and going all day, I definitely want to eat a good protein based breakfast. But if I'm working from home that day and have a more casual day, I like eating my breakfast at 10, 30, 11. And I think a key to it also is not just when you start eating, but it's not really eating after 7 p.m. or within three or four hours of going to bed. And and really, that's how our ancestors would have eaten. I mean, before we had electricity where we could flip on the kitchen light at 10 o'clock at night and go cook something, we would not have gone and lit a fire and gone into our cache of food and, and stoked a fire and boiled water outdoors at 10 o'clock at night. So really, some of this is re- a return to ancestral pathways. Yep, exactly. And I think that's the key to intermittent fasting is to eat dinner early. And then it's really easy. But I agree with you. I think a lot, a lot of what we do is just, you know, is a lot of just ancient wisdom that, that now there's research for it. I mean, I don't know where the ketogenic diet, I just sort of got intrigued by people. The, the first person who really intrigued me, you know, because what I do is I, I listen to patients and I just see what they're doing. And, and if it works, I'm always interested to see what they're doing and, and, and how effective it is. I had a, a lovely French woman who was incredible, who had who developed type 1 diabetes, she's insulin dependent, and she went on this ketogenic diet, and this was years ago, and I thought she was crazy, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and she reversed She reversed her diet, she's totally controlled, she's off all insulin on this ketogenic diet, and she's thriving, I mean, and she was sort of my first person who I really sort of saw do well with it, and then I started trying it with really sick people, a lot of like neurodegenerative type patients. And I, I just started seeing people doing well with it. So I, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on ketogenic diets and I don't recommend it for everyone, but someone who's really sick, some people who, who can't lose weight, I'm quite intrigued by it because it doesn't work for everyone. It's not, intermittent fasting seems to be a more general tool that most people can do and most people it will help. Ketogenic diet is much tougher, and it's not – I don't know if it's a good thing to do long-term anyway, but um, people seem to do well by cycling in and out of you know, ketogenesis. Yeah, the, the literature on it that I've read um, really does largely come from the neurological disease yep. branch of sci- branches of sciences and looks at seizures, other neurodegenerative diseases. But actually, I saw a research article not too long ago that even in kids, but this was kids with seizures, that you can do a ketogenic diet safely for up to two years. But I think this brings us to an important point, which is you're talking about very sick people. And I think that a lot of times what I see is that people who are generally well, but maybe not feeling their best go on sometimes very extreme and restrictive programs. And, and we, we get mixed up between therapeutic programs and yep. sustainable lifestyles. Exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think, to me, a ketogenic diet is, is more therapeutic than a lifestyle diet. Um, I think it can be extremely effective as a therapeutic tool. But as for as a sustainable lifestyle habit or diet, I think it's pretty hard, and it's 
and and it's more than likely unnecessary for the majority of people. That's what I would say from my experience. But I'm not. I don't have tons of experience with it. But you know, I tend to not. I'm not obsessed with measuring my ketones. But I tend. I can tell when I'm starting to eat too many carbs for my body, and I just up the fat. I, I mean, I do think what's important. I mean, the big mistake I've seen with people getting into high fat diets is when they start eating carbs with that. That's the worst thing you can do. So as long as people are eating high fat diets and keeping their carbs really low, I think it's fine. But yeah, a ketogenic diet is something that I view as a therapeutic diet rather than a, a sort of diet plan for the masses. Frank, so your book is taking a really lovely departure from so many of the health books that are coming out right now. And um, so many of the books I feel like are based on very prescriptive plans and also in general that functional medicine world, which we're both a part of in, in some ways, has gotten very deep into testing, genomic testing. And I'm seeing that people are getting really worried about things that they may have or may not have or may mean something but may not mean something based on test results. And you really don't go down the testing road in your book. Can you talk about what you think of the role of some of these genomic tests that are coming out or the the relative importance of things like microbiome stool testing as opposed to just doing the healthy things and and improving for the average person, not for someone who's super, super sick? I think for the average person, they probably, most of them are unnecessary or not that helpful for the every, you know, I mean, I, I don't do that much testing because what I've found over the years, I'm sure people are going to get upset with me when I say this, is those stool tests don't actually help that much. You know, after doing them in the early days, you're basically doing something similar for most patients. You can tell what's going on without the test. Occasionally, they can be helpful. And I'm not sure how accurate they are. I mean, you're measuring, let's say, 10, 20 different strains in, 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 in an ecosystem that has thousands and thousands and you know, hundreds of thousands of strains. So, so you, you're taking – I don't think it's pretty – accurate at all i mean the genomics is interesting you know we can't really do most of that in new york although they're starting to allow some of it so i never really got into it because it wasn't available in new york i think it could be good information to have i think you've got to be a little bit wary of the fear that it induces in people which can be more of a problem than having an enzyme deficiency (laughs) i think the, the fear and the emotional aspects of healing, which as a male and as a Western doctor took me a long time to really get, are actually extremely important. So I think, unfortunately, a lot of this testing makes people really scared and obsessive. And um, a lot of the people who do these tests start treating the test and not the person. A lot of the traditions or a lot of what both of us got taught in the beginning, treat the patient and not the disease. You know, I feel is happening even in functional medicine. We're treating the lab results and not yes, the patient. I agree. I, and if people want to get mad, they can get mad at both of us together. The times I use stool testing are, are increasingly rare. 
And um, it's usually when I've reached some kind of an impasse and I'm looking for more information than is obvious. Or if I'm considering using a pharmaceutical, which is rare also, but a pharmaceutical to treat something like dysbiosis, then I want to be able to prove that it's there. But more often than not, I find the tests to be confounding. And I don't, we don't do a markup on those tests in my practice. But I, I, even with that, you know, so there's no incentive for me to do them financially, which concerns me because a lot of practices use them as financial value for the practice. Yeah, I agree 100% with you. So Aviva, we even closer brothers. I agree. Yeah, we... <laughs> I've always found that the two of us agree on almost everything, which is, yeah. that's great. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. That's exactly spot on. And I've had people who have called, you know, I think for women who are uh, entering their childbearing years, knowing whether they have MTHFR can be helpful, or you yep. can just take methylfolate. And sometimes yep. when there's a long history, for example, of, um, alcoholism or mental health problems in the family, knowing that there is some kind of a genetic predisposition that we can measure can sometimes provide an element of relief and say, oh, okay, I understand where this is coming from. It's not me. But I do agree. I've had so many emails where people have written me and said, oh my God, I found out I'm MTHFR. Is my child going to have autism? What do I need to do? Or this test told me that now I'm at high risk for cancer. And it doesn't actually mean that. It, it, we don't, there's so much more that we don't know about the microbiome or these tests than we do know. So, yeah, I think there may be loose guideposts that can give us a little bit of information. But we're really emphasizing them. And I, I just want to so appreciate you in the book and in your practice that you're not doing that, not falling into that trap. Right. Although at the back of the book, I do list out the blood test you can get but i do always you know i have a section what to do when what to do when you can't poop what to do when you're tired what to do because that's what people want which is really interesting they want um, recipes so i do recommend certain blood tests but in the practice i really i use less and less especially the functional medicine testing you know, it's interesting that you, you said that, um, tell me what to do. We're actually starting a whole new uh, series of blogs on my website, which are just tell me what to do, right? I have a urinary tract infection right now. Yep. Tell me what to do. And I think that so many people are so overwhelmed by information that yep. sorting through all the theory and all the philosophy and all the explanations, it can be burdensome. And that was something else that I really appreciated about your book. It just cuts to the chase. It's like, and, and, and within that, you, you have a lot of room. You're not giving a lot of theory. You have a lot of room for very specific, here's how to cook this. Here's what kind of fat to get. Here's how to store this in your refrigerator. You have a section on how to organize your refrigerator by shelf and drawer. And that may sound so Marie Kondo, but it, it's actually so practical it's so fundamental to how i eat well i know what's in my fridge i know what's in my pantry so talk more about just this it's so practical well that was the idea too because people you know are so busy they don't have time there's so much information you know they always come into the office and they say doc you know just tell me what to do Uh, they're less interested in the whys they just want to know what to do and how to do it 
So the book sort of came out of that. It was sort of a, a solution to that demand that I see in my practice. Let, you know, the time constraint patient who just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And everyone's a time constrained patient. Who isn't time constrained right now? No, exactly. So that's sort of, it came out of that sort of answering that demand that I see in my patients in this day and age. So I don't want to give away too much here because I want everyone to read this book. You know, I want everyone to just enjoy this book. I have opened the galley PDF you have sent me so many times because it's vibrant. And when, when you guys get your copy of the book, you will know. And those of you who follow my podcast regularly know I don't do a lot of pitching on my podcast. I don't do affiliate sales. I don't do any of that. So when I'm promoting something, it's because I really believe in it. So Frank, tell us when the book comes out and how everyone can get it. Uh, Well, the book comes out on April the 3rd and uh, you'll be able to get it anywhere. We do have a pre-order page on how to be well. If you just go to bewell.com, there'll be a link to the pre-order page. Or you can just get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere. Sold It will be sold at all bookstores, including Costco and even Walmart. So you'll be able to get it anywhere. And um, uh, hopefully your audience will enjoy it. And thank you so much. You're such a gem. And I'm excited to, uh, to speak. You know, you are going to be interviewing me or we're going to be doing a talk together at ABC. Why don't you tell your Yes, audience? we have a special surprise, everybody. So I had the great, truly great honor of being asked by Frank, Dr. Lippman, to join him as his interviewer for a special evening at the Deepak Chopra Home Center in New York City, which is at ABC Home. It's going to be on April 3rd. So if you're listening to this podcast before April 3rd and you are in the metro New York area or just feel like flying into New York to come hang out with us, you can pre-order. You can get a ticket for that. If you can't join us in the city, it will actually also be recorded and video live streamed. So we'll get the links to you below this podcast for where you can access tickets if you want to join us or how you can access the replay if you want to um, listen to it after. But that's going to be a really wonderful event. Those ABC events are a delight. And um, as you guys can hear listening to Frank, he's a wealth of wisdom and experience and just a very um, not, when I say integrative, I, I mean, he is integrated as a person. He has integrated so much over his many years of practice in different settings and um, with so many patients. So Frank, thank you for bringing the healing that you bring to the world and for reminding us how to be well. Well, You are welcome. And thank you for this wonderful interview. It's always great to speak to you, Aviva. You are a sister, that's for sure. (laughs) I feel the same way. Thank you for joining us, everybody. And Go to the links below the podcast so you can get a copy of Frank's bright and beautiful new book. And if you can join us in in New York, come say hello. We hope to see you there. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health 
naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.